welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Thanks for being with us. We are your source for commercial real estate, market intelligence, forecasts, and strategies. And we have a fantastic show for you today. We have Ryan Severino with us. He's a senior economist with Reese. He's come down from New York to see us in Studio One. Ryan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Michael. Always good to see you, especially to get to come down to the uh, sunny climbs down here uh, in Atlanta and get yeah. away from New York for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful day today. And and Ryan, one of the things that seems to be on the mind of, of readers and listeners and viewers today is, I don't know, where are we You know, in the cycle? Seem, some people seem to be a little nervous about it, wondering what's going to happen, how long the good times are going to roll. It certainly has been good times. So wh where are we? How long will the good times last? You know, I, I feel pretty confident that we still have some room to run this far. I, I think context is important. I think people look at where we are in the cycle and think, okay, the economic recovery slash expansion is it's more than six and a half years old at this point. You know, it's, it's clo closely approaching seven years. And I think by conventional standards, that is a relatively long period of time. But I think the thing that characterizes this recovery period from the recession that we went through is that it, w it, it is a little bit different. We don't often go through the kinds of balance sheet recessions like the one that we went through. And the empirical research is pretty good in that it shows that when you go through these recessions, the recovery is shallower on a per annum basis, but the cycle tends to be a little bit longer. And so I think if you look at this kind of recovery, that's kind of what we've gotten. We've gotten weaker GDP growth on a, on a per year basis than you know we had really seen for most of the post-war era, certainly in some yeah, of the boom years. it's been a slow years. recovery, hasn't it? Very slow. You know, two to two and a half percent is, is not anemic, but certainly relative to what I think most people have gotten used to in the latter half of the 20th century, it's certainly different. So. That feels about right to me. And then if you, you know, look at those kinds of recoveries, they tend to be a little bit longer. And so I think if you look at the major economic indicators, what's going on with economic fundamentals, and sort of differentiate between what we're seeing in the markets and what we're seeing in the economy, the economy still looks pretty solid. The labor market continues to create a good, solid number of jobs. Uh, you're starting to see you know, somewhat better data on uh, wages, even though they're still muted by historical standards. If you look at industrial production, if you look at capacity utilization, if you look at the yield curve, if you look at the expansion of the service sector, if you look at the expansion of the industrial sector, excluding you know, mining, basically excluding energy oil, all of those things still look pretty good. So I still think we probably have you know, a couple of years or so before we have to start to think about are we nearing the end of the cycle? Because most of the indicators are, are really saying, ah, this is kind of a mid to late stage expansion that we're still in. And I don't think there's anything that really intimates that we're on the precipice of a recession, you know, knocking on the door anytime soon. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think some people are in the camp that they're, they're just very nervous and think the, the tables are really going to turn uh, negative here uh, now in 2016. But then we have some sellers uh, out there of properties that, you know, the market is so hot, they just, they're not even coming to terms with buyers in this market thinking that it's going to go on forever. And, uh, you know, what are some of the other reasons why it's, it's different? you know, this time, you know, uh, is one of the examples the amount of debt that we have on our real estate today compared to the last fall? Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I think that's, that is an important differentiating characteristic. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that, you know, prices have certainly appreciated, no doubt about it, property mm -hmm. values are hot. But I think if you look at the level of debt, it's not like it was before the last downturn. If you look at the fundamentals and the underwriting assumptions that people are using, I'm, I'm not saying that people aren't getting 
more aggressive over time, but it's not incongruent with what we're actually seeing in terms of the evolution of fundamentals in most property types. I think if you went back to the last cycle, you would have seen what I've often called wildly aspirational underwriting assumptions. And, yeah. and I'm not saying you what, don't what vacancy, see that, what but, reserves. Right, I mean, <laughs> double digit sequential, you know, rent growth for years and years and years and years. Yeah. It, you know, the probability of that occurring was so low and yet so many people were using it. I think yeah. there's more discipline in the market today relative to what we were seeing before. So I think, you know, it's the combination of the economy still growing, the combination that fundamentals are not showing that they're peaking just yet, and that the capital markets, while, while clearly, again, pricing is robust, it's not really sort of an overheating excess leverage type situation, at least not yet. I mean, I never yeah. rule out that possibility, but really not yet. I mean, if you look at most of the major indicators, it still looks pretty good out there. Yeah. And you mentioned jobs. So what about the job market? It seems like the companies that we represent uh, in their office space are really concerned about uh, recruiting and retention. And it seems like the job market's really tightened up for a lot of industries. Do you think that job markets continue to grow? Of course, that's going to help commercial real estate if it does, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, even if we, it's hard for us to replicate what happened in, in 2014 when the labor market was incredibly robust, you know, this year most people thought we got off to kind of a slow start. And then the January number was revised upward, and, and February number was actually really robust. And so I think. Even, again, we're almost seven years into this, we're still seeing a labor market that, on average, you know, using a reasonable interval, six, 12 months, is still generating more than 200,000 jobs per month. And I think, you know, knock wood, barring some kind of idiosyncratic shock, even if the absolute number of jobs per month starts to moderate over time, I, I still think that there's some gas left in the tank here, that we can see the economy to continue to create jobs, to pull people who are either out of the labor force or marginally attached to the labor force back in, that will, you know, you, you've seen the decline in the unemployment rate start to slow as, as we've attracted people back in. But I mean, even, you know, the participation rate has started to move up and people were really, really sort of downtrodden about that because it hit levels that we haven't really seen in, in you know, um, a few decades. We've even seen some stabilization there. And so I think, you know, you're really starting to see not just, uh, you know, the sort of well-entrenched members of the labor force starting to fare better, but I think even some of those marginally attached participants, somebody who was part-time transitioning to full-time, someone who wasn't working at all transitioning to working, I think you, you will continue to see that persist at least through the balance of this year into next yeah, year. Well, that's good news. And we're talking with Ryan Severino, a senior economist with Reese, and, and Reese tracks the commercial real estate market pretty much every sector uh, throughout, what, North America? Uh, and you guys do a good job of that. And and Ryan, what about the people who are suggesting that some buyers may be overpaying in this market? I mean, we're seeing some extremely low cap rates, especially in some of the gateway markets for, for core assets. Uh, what do you say to those people when, the, when they mention bubble pricing? You know, I think <laughs> there are pockets here and there where you could say things are getting a little bit frothy. But in aggregate, I think if you look at where we are in the market today, cap rates today are fairly similar to what we saw at the peak in 2007-ish, in 2008, before the bottom really dropped out of the market. And I think that's why a lot of people are they're looking at that as a basis of comparison and they're saying, oh, here it goes, we're, we're, we go we're back in another bubble. But yeah. I think it's important to differentiate between the components that drove the cap rates so low then and the components that drove the cap rates so low now. Then it was, I'll call it the risk premium, right? The cap rate spread was too low. Because people forget treasury rates mm -hmm. You know, we'll use the 10-year treasury because that's really sort of the benchmark for real estate, were about 200 basis points higher then than they are now. 
So where did that low cap rate come from? It came from that compressed risk premium that people were just overpaying. They were discounting how much risk was in the properties. And, and I think what happened in 2008 and 2009 clearly bears that out. If you look at the situation today, the cap rates are low because the interest rates are low. The risk premium that's embedded in real estate deals is still pretty wide. It's about a couple hundred basis points wider than it was before the bubble burst to which people usually want to throw the Fed under the bus and say, well, interest rates are only low because the Fed's holding them down. To which I say, the Fed really only has control on a short-term basis and really only nominal rates. The real interest rate in the economy is primarily determined by economic growth. And we were just talking about how it's been weaker now than what we've seen historically. So that tells me that the cap rates are probably congruent with the economic environment that we're in. But you can't make that case in 2007 or 2008 where you would probably argue that the risk premiums were a little too narrow. Yeah. And we're certainly seeing a lot of demand from from domestic buyers of all types and foreign investors in the U.S. So we had the FERPTA changes, which, right. you know, is that going to create more demand for commercial real estate and, and maybe keep uh, cap rates uh, low? Yeah, I think all else being equal, you know, mm -hmm. we are the harbor in the tempest, whether it's foreign investors, U.S. investors, you know, I, I'm... It, it, it can be a double-edged sword, but one edge of that sword is that when there's disruptions in the global economy and markets elsewhere in the world, you see money come funneling back into the U.S., into, into treasuries, into commercial real estate. And so I think it looks good from the macroeconomy point of view. It looks good from fundamentals. And it also looks good from sort of a capital flow point of view. So, yeah, I think even as interest rates rise, as long as those things stay in place, you'll see relatively low cap rates for at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, because I guess people are seeing real estate in the, in the U.S. as kind of a safe haven, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's much safer than just about anywhere else in the world. Yeah. I mean, even some of the boom countries are slowing a bit these days. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you start seeing people at parties, again, uh, start talking about buying condos and, and, and properties <laughs> in New York and, and uh, Miami, Miami and, and Vegas. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, didn't we hear this in us? Six or seven. No. When your taxi cab driver is telling you that he owns seven condos, you're in trouble. Take it with a grain of salt. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more from Ryan Severino with Reese on Real Estate. I'm Michael Bull. Hey, next, we're going to talk about the impact of rising rates on commercial real estate. Stay with us. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by CCIM Institute, Commercial Real Estate's global standard for professional achievement. Visit ccim.com slash CRE show. That's ccim.com slash CRE show. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. We're talking with Ryan Severino, Senior Economist with Reese, about the commercial real estate market and what to expect moving forward. And, and Ryan, I think one of the questions on listeners' minds today is, you know, I guess we hope that interest rates are, are going to go up, right? That the economy sure. continues to prove that they're going to go up. Well, how will that impact commercial real estate values and cap rates, do you think, moving forward over the next several years? You know, here's what's interesting. It's almost in, in the way that you asked the mm -hmm. question or, or led into the question, because you're right. We generally do want to be rooting for rising interest rates because it's a reflection on the economy. If interest rates aren't rising, it probably says something not so great about the economy. Yeah. And in there contains a lot of useful information, because I think the average person has a tendency to think that when interest rates are going to go up, cap rates are going to go up. And that's only true if you think that the risk premium, the cap rate spread, whatever you want to call it, 
is either fixed or it's also positively correlated with the economy. And mm -hmm. that doesn't really make any sense, right? That risk premium should compress as the economy gets better. Because as the economy gets better, all the while interest rates going up, fundamentals get better, NOI growth starts to accelerate. Any rational investor is going to pay more for a property with accelerating income growth than one that has flat to declining income growth. And the risk perception of those assets is going to diminish because it's like any other sort of risk tolerant asset class its fortunes are better along with the overall economy getting better. So investors are willing to sort of pay up a little bit more because they know there isn't as much risk in a rising economic environment than a falling economic environment. Right. And of so, course, they're not buying the cap rate is suggesting really your first year's return. And right. They're not buying it for one year's return. Exactly. Anyway. So right. I think that's where people sort of not that interest rates aren't an important factor. I mean, clearly we were just discussing that, but they don't operate in a vacuum. The only way that you would have interest rates on their own, putting upward pressure on cap rates is if that other component, the risk premium, like I said, was either fixed or also positively correlated, which we know through pretty good empirical research it isn't. So I think, you know, short term, looking out the next couple of years, I'm not saying you're going to get cap rate compression like we have been seeing during this recovery, but it's hard to envision an environment, especially with so many people perceiving the risk to real estate in the US, like we were mentioning, being relatively low and still putting money here in the US, to really see that kind of dynamic swing the other way. Eventually it will, and I am a big believer, and I think you know it's not hard to see this in the data, economics and real estate, these are cyclical things. And at some point, we will be in a rising cap rate environment, probably at the time when fundamentals sort of peak, and then they start to move a little bit past peak, all the while interest rates are still rising because the economy still looks good, and then you lose the downward pressure on cap rates that you're getting from the improving fundamentals and the compressing risk premium, while interest rates are going up, that's a recipe for cap rates to start rising again. And it usually leads into a recession. Right. Okay. So my question for you then is, when does that happen? Right? <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, know uh, look in the crystal ball here, the commercial real estate show desk. Uh, uh, you know, when is the dark side? And <laughs> <laughs> when does it happen? I mean, how long until that happens? I mean, I guess it depends on interest rates and a lot of things. But what would be your estimate? I'd say we probably have couple years, two, three years, somewhere mm -hmm. in that time frame. Because again, thinking that this is, we're seven years into this recovery, that puts us kind of, you know, nine to 10 years out. That's really long uh, compared to historical expansion cycles in the U.S. The longest one is really the, the 90s dot-com expansion, and that's going to be very difficult for us to sort of replicate. It's not impossible. Um, and there's a lot of good research that says recoveries don't die of old age, which basically means just because the recovery is getting older, doesn't mean that oh, it's going to have to end soon because it's 10 years old or 11 years old. But it's like anything else. It's the law of compounding. The bigger something gets and the more you have to compound, the harder it is to sustain that. And so I think it, by the time we get out over the next two, three years, if we haven't started to see those signs show up, I'd start to think more critically about it. I'm not explicitly calling for a recession, but again, it's a cyclical thing. At some yeah. point in that sort of high single digit, low double digit number of years of this economy expanding, we're going to have to start to face the realization that a recession is, is going to come sooner or later. Yeah. I mean, how much will it impact commercial real estate this time if it's not really real estate based? I mean, you know, we've had a very uh, lackluster uh, level of new construction and new supply, right? We have a lot lower debt. Uh, so is, is that going to help us? And then we also have rising labor costs and construction costs that seem to be, uh, again, maybe limiting new supply. So if we do hit a recession in two or three years that, that's not real estate based, is real estate kind of a safe bet? 
You know, it, it's safer than a lot of other parts of the economy and, and the asset marketplace, if you will. I think if you look at the last two or three, you know, real recessions in the U.S. that impacted real estate. The dot-com one barely impacted real estate, as I think everybody knows. But if you look at what happened sort of the late 80s into early 90s with the wake of the savings and loan crisis, that was a supply-side problem, right? You change tax laws, everybody wants to build, all of a sudden you have an oversupply situation. You have a whole bunch of, they call them see-through buildings because they never got leased up. That was a bad problem. Yeah. In 2008, it was not so much a supply-side issue, it was a demand-side issue and that you know, when you see the economy contract that much, you lose eight and a half million jobs, it's going to show up in real estate, whether or not real estate, the whole debt issue notwithstanding, it's gonna show up in the real estate. This time around, you're right, we don't have the supply issue the way that we had in the early 90s, and we're probably not going to see the kind of big hole punched in aggregate demand that we saw during the last downturn, because honestly, those kinds of recessions only occur every so often, to use a technical economic term, <laughs> because it takes a while for those imbalances to build. You know, you have to have a lot of people doing a lot of stupid things over a relatively long period of time to get that to happen. So when the next recession comes, it will be shorter and shallower than the one that we just went through. So I'm not saying it won't show up in the real estate market at yeah. all, but it won't be anything like the one that we just saw, which was you know, clearly uh, the worst recession since the Great That's Depression in hear. the 30s. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to see that again in my yeah. lifetime. You know, no. Once is enough. It was, yeah. it was an interesting experience, and I say that without <laughs> connotation, you know, yeah. just interesting, especially as a research geek. Yeah. But I, I, I have no desire to see that again in my lifetime. And you mentioned that, it's, that you're not, not seeing you know, stupid investors and building going on and it seems like uh, the lenders are, are really cautious you know we had Brian Bailey on the show with the Fed and it seemed like you know they were kind of indicating to, to lenders to, to be a little cautious in their underwriting especially I guess with multifamily uh, and it seems like the you know the lenders if, if, the, if the debt is cautious you know that's also gonna help I agree and mm -hmm. I think there has been more restraint I think the last time around was a little bit of an anomaly, right? It was almost the perfect storm. We came out of the dot-com recession, so nobody wanted to touch equities because they, they were tainted. Um, you know, bond yields had fallen to, at least at that time, what were you know, really cyclical low levels. And so in the prospect of rising interest rates, nobody wanted to touch the bond market. And then it was as if people forgot that real estate existed. Like, hey, there's all this stuff and it has attractive yields and it's a, it's a hard physical asset, so there's an element of security there if anything happens. And people went piling in. And so I, clearly that had really deleterious impacts on the, this time around, Again, values are up, but we haven't seen the excessive use of debt. If you look at debt relative, nominal debt relative to nominal GDP, you know, we're still at a low, we're probably about four, four and a half points below where the peak level was, which means the economy can probably grow for another six, seven years before we can even start to approach that level again. You know, I mean, at that point, yeah, if, if, if real estate values increase and we start to get debt growing faster than that, then maybe over like a six, seven year period, we can start to nudge back toward that. But like we were just talking about, there might be a better chance that we hit the next recession before we get back to that peak level of commercial real estate debt to GDP. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a good point. And I think there's a lot of reasons that uh, it is a little different, but I think we're all nervous, right? That, that last downturn was so bad that everybody's sure. kind of shaking in their boots and, and maybe being overcautious. Well, well, stay tuned. We're going to have more from Ryan Severino. Next, we're going to talk about some of the sectors, some opportunities in the sectors, and some factors that may impact the various commercial real estate sectors. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. 
The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Today our show topic is called Reese on Real Estate. We have Ryan Severino here, Senior Economist with Reese, and we're talking about commercial real estate forecasts. And one of the sectors that I think people are somehow a little concerned with uh, is because it's had such a great rise and such great performance is the multifamily market. Some people think maybe we're overbuilding in some markets, but uh, it seems like the, the, the apartment market just continues to do well. I mean, what do you see for the apartment market? Yeah, I think it has been kind of the darling of commercial real estate for the last five, six years. I think rather than extolling its virtues, I think there is a little bit of concern out there on the part of supply growth. And I think a little bit of concern is probably the right way to characterize it. Mm -hmm. This is not turning into a massive overbuilding situation. It's not a deluge. We're not drinking from the, the proverbial fire hose. but. It's definitely different than what we've seen over the last four to five years. The last four to five years, we've been the big beneficiaries of increasing demand while the supply pipeline had to catch up because we, we weren't really building anything when the market started to recover because of that whole, you know, that little credit crisis thing that was going on. <laughs> then we started to play catch up and now we're starting to run ahead of demand a little bit. But that said, proper context, vacancy is still incredibly low nationally. It's only going to drift marginally higher. So I think you'll see signs at the margin. There are some pockets of, of overbuilding certain markets, certain submarkets. But by and large, even as vacancy starts to drift higher, I think you will still see the apartment market be in a low vacancy rate environment over the next you know, four to five years. I try not to look into the crystal ball beyond that. Yeah. But it will still stay a very strong property type even over that interval. I think people just have to recalibrate their expectations a little bit because it has been so good for the last five yeah. or six years. I mean, it's been the perfect storm in many respects. And I think it will still be a favorable environment going forward, just not as easy as it's been over you know, this recovery, which really dates back to early 2010. And there seems like there's been a lot of factors that have been creating that demand for, for multifamily from the tenant side. Uh, do you expect that, that high demand to continue as the, uh, the millennials still going to, to, to lease this many apartments or are some of them going to start buying you know, houses or what? I'm a big believer and I think the data kind of bears this out that mm -hmm. most people make the rent versus own decision based on sort of economics where they are in their life mm -hmm. and not just the relative economics of rent versus owning. And, Millennials are still a pretty young generation. You know, the, the big bulk of them are still sort of 23, 24, and 22. And so they have a ways to go before they think about settling down, getting married, starting a family. That's really when you see the transition to home ownership. The two big drivers of transitioning from renting to home owning are getting married and having your first child. And if you're early 20s, most people in their early 20s aren't thinking about those things, especially millennials. They're very transient. They move around for job opportunities more than older generations. Uh, they're willing to go to graduate school in a way that we have never really seen before in historical generations. It doesn't make sense for them to be tethered to a condo or a mortgage. And so I would expect them to make that transition, but I think we have years before 
you know, we really start to see that transition in bulk. The older tranches of the millennials are making that transition, but they're, they're you know, in front of a big bulk of them that still have a ways to go before they start to think about that, that proposition. Okay. And where do you see opportunities in the multifamily market? Is, is it in new supply in some of the underserved markets, or is it in buying B communities? What are some opportunities? I'll tell you my two favorite places to play, which if you think about a Venn diagram, they kind of overlap a little bit. One is BC because we just don't build it. And if anything, the inventory starts to deplete over time because there are more conversions and demolitions or just people buy one and CapEx it back up to Class A, then you have sort of attrition from Class A down into BC. So I like that BC space. You can't push rents as easily as you can in the Class A space, but the tenancy is very durable. Vacancy rates are, are incredibly low relative to A, relative to historical standards. Um, and I think especially if you're, if you're opportunistic about deals, you find the ones where you can you know, slap on a new coat of paint or make some minor changes and you can juice the rents a little bit. I think there's a lot of value to be found there, especially in really small property types below the institutional radar screen. That other part of the Venn diagram, I think suburbs are being overlooked. I think people have this tendency to think, oh, the suburbs are dead and they're never coming back. And I think there's some truth in sort of the suburbs versus CBDs thing, but more people live in the suburbs than live in the CBDs, more people work in the suburbs than work in the CBDs, and I think it is being neglected a little bit. I'm not saying there's no construction out there, but relative to inventory, you're definitely seeing more concentration in the CBDs than you're seeing out in the suburbs. Any markets or cities that uh, you like for opportunities? You know, I like the growth markets, especially if you're talking about BC. So, you know, the growth markets in Texas and other parts of the Southeast and Southwest. I think, you know, you have people who are, who are working, they're not making, not to be crass about it, but they're, you know, they can't afford a class A, they can't afford home ownership right now, and those populations keep swelling. If you Why are you at, so mean to me? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make more money. If you look at the, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there, but if you look at the populations in those cities, you know, mm-hmm. Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, Atlanta, places like that, markets are still growing. It's okay. a good sign for BC apartments. Okay, good. Well, after a short break, we're going to talk about retail and the office market, and we may get to industrial. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Excelligen, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Today we're talking with Ryan Severino, Senior Economist with Reese, and we're talking about commercial real estate. One of the sectors that I think a lot of people are concerned about is retail. You know, we have online sales. We have a lot of store closures that were announced in, in January, but yet some retail seems to be doing really well. What do you think about the retail sector? Yeah, I think retail is really interesting right now because it is a little bit of a mixed picture. You have some high end that's still doing pretty well, the low end that's kind of hanging in there, the middle of the market, I know as you and I have talked about before, still kind of looking for stability that it hasn't really found just yet. And I think you're starting to see those divergences play out in ways that people probably weren't even expecting. My favorite one is you think about um, Sports Authority just announced, you know, bankruptcy and closing stores. And then you look at someone like Dick Sporting Goods, who's been expanding their footprint and, and growing their, their market base. And I think that's really sort of this contrast. 
going to Sports Authority is almost like going to buy sporting goods at an airplane hangar, right? It's sort of bare bones. It doesn't have a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's kind of antiseptic. You go into Dick's and Dick's has a little more of a high-end feel to it. The finish is a little bit nicer. It feels a little more welcoming. And it's sort of the high-end versus low-end kind of dichotomy that we've seen in some ways. So I think that's still playing out even as the rising high tide of the economy and the labor market help it's only going to help so much. To your point about e-commerce, I think what you're starting to see now is that as e-commerce continues to grow, we're realizing that e-commerce and bricks and mortar are a little more complementary than competitive in many respects, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be disruptive to certain retailers who are going to be closing certain underperforming stores and keeping the ones that they feel like are actually viable. The big concern, if you went back over the last, I don't know, five, ten years at least, was that you're going to see bricks and mortar retailers imperiled by the showrooming concept, right? Where retailer, uh, consumers were going to come in, take a look at the goods, and then go home and buy them online. What you've also seen is that there's the reverse, which is called webrooming. I don't know if you've heard about this, but people will actually look at goods online, and then they'll go into the stores, and they'll feel them, and they'll play with them a little bit. And then it actually is kind of a synergistic, not to be buzzworthy, but a little bit of a synergistic relationship, which is why you're seeing some e-tailers now looking forward to opening up bricks and mortar stores somewhere. So consumers can do that, so it's easier for them to have returns. And so I think it's becoming a little more synergistic. And then the other thing about retail, which is really happening, is that the whole experiential re retail concept, which has become really in vogue these days, retail is kind of going through a transition, I feel like, from just sort of the old perfunctory, oh, I have to go get jeans, so I'm going to run into Macy's or Banana Republic and get jeans and then go back in my car and drive home, to this kind of hybrid sort of work, eat, play, entertainment complex, which is why I think you've seen the rise of you know, full service restaurants as opposed to food courts and movie theaters and entertainment venues like Dave and Buster's or something like that. You're seeing retail start to transition away from that just I have to buy stuff model to we can actually do other things in addition to maybe picking up some t-shirts or something like that, which is why I think you've seen lifestyle centers and town centers and even some of the higher end malls that have capitalized on this be the winners in this transition over the last five, ten years. Well, having said all that, and you guys look at the, the performance on the rental rates and the occupancy throughout the U.S., uh, what, what are the trends telling you as far as the future of the performance in the multifamily sector? You know, it's still really sort of a mixed-speed recovery right now, depending upon what, you're, what part of the market we're talking about. Mm -hmm. High-end stuff, still good times. Very low vacancy rates, strong rent growth. Um, it's clearly a landlord's market. Mm -hmm. Your kind of BC malls, that's where there's still a lot of concern because demand, as we talked about, hasn't really come back just yet. You're seeing some enterprising people buy some of these struggling malls and turn them into a mixed-use center or convert a mall into a town center. So I think there are some opportunities there. I think it's the sort of more mundane neighborhood and community centers. I think you've seen the defensive ones hold up pretty well, the grocery-anchored centers versus the non-anchored centers. And then even power centers. You know, I, I know big box has certainly come under pressure, but power centers have had a pretty good run for the last five, six years. So I, I think it really is sort of a, a difference depending upon you know, what part of the consumer spectrum you're targeting, what your specific subtype is, and, and do you have something to offer your consumers that can't easily be replicated online, like a dining experience or you know, if you go to a big mall like the Mall of America and you have roller coasters and Ferris wheels and good restaurants and things like that, that is the incentive that is going to draw people in above and beyond just competing on price or something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So where do you see opportunities in retail? You know, I, I, I really think that the rising high tide 
will raise most of the ships going forward. The one thing you have to watch out for are the centers where they're in a part of the country that's in more permanent decline. But, you know, I know we've talked about this before, but it's a question of cap rates. And you see, oh, these are relatively high attractive cap rates. Okay, but why are they high? And I think there are some centers that are probably being beaten down a little too bit because too much because I think people are thinking, oh, this is a permanent kind of thing with the internet. And I'm again, it's a little more complementary than purely competitive. And so I think there are some centers that will benefit as the economy continues to recover for the next few years and the labor market continues to recover. But I'll be the first person to concede, it's kind of hard to know sometimes the difference between something that's declining on a more permanent basis and something that's going to start to rise again. But honestly, I also think these redevelopment opportunities, if you can buy a struggling mall and turn it into a successful town center or lifestyle center, I've seen those concepts perform incredibly well, but that's clearly a little more of a high risk, high reward kind of opportunity. Yeah, very high risk. So you're bullish then on multifamily and on retail, you're uh, lukewarm there? Yeah, you know, it's clearly the laggard in this recovery, so Mm -hmm. I still think it's got some room to run, but this is not your grandmother's retail market recovery. (laughs) I mean, we're not going to get back to the vacancy rates that we saw last decade or, or even the decade before that, before the cycle turns. So you have to pick your spots very carefully in, in retail. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of shopping center sales and, uh, you know, we're seeing the same thing, some real low cap rate, really everybody wanting to buy them. We see some that are struggling and do have some opportunities. Well, stay tuned. We're going to talk about the office market and the industrial market. Stay tuned for more with Ryan Severino on the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Commercial Search. To market or source commercial properties for sale or lease all over the country, visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. We're talking with Ryan Severino, Senior Economist with Reese. And let's talk about office. What is your outlook for the office market? Relatively optimistic, I think. We're not going to see the kind of strength in the office market that we've seen in recoveries past, but I I clearly think that we are seeing the tide starting to rise a little bit faster. In the fourth quarter of last year, we actually saw, it's not going to sound like much, but relative basis, 20 basis point compression in the national vacancy rate, which is really the first time since kind of the mid-2000s in the wake of the dot com boom and bust that we've seen vacancy compress more than 10 basis points. So it's been a long time coming to get back to this point. And I think it portends better things because it's not just that the labor market is generating more jobs, but the quality of job over time is getting better. It's creating more office using jobs than we've seen. So I'd expect to see vacancies fall probably another oh, 200, 250 basis points before we even start to think about the cycle turning. And I think that would be a a generally good outcome for most office markets across the country. Yeah, well, that's good news. And it seems like the uh, office landlords are doing the Snoopy dance, especially and where we're recording the show here in Atlanta. You know, we're seeing rental increases, uh, rental rate increases like we've never seen before. And, you know, and some of the tenants are really getting rate shock, you know, when they go to do their renewal. So, well, let's talk about industrial. You know, it seems like industrial's been a very hot market. What do you expect there? What's your forecast? I'm not materially different from office. I feel sort of the same kind of optimism about the industrial market. I think it has had a good run for the last few years. You have started to see the supply pipeline swelling a little bit relative to what we were seeing just a few years ago. But I think there is a lot of demand out there between 
you know, just sort of us importing things, and then you think about the economy continuing to grow and, and sort of trade volumes starting to run up again, not growth that we've seen historically, but improvement in trade volumes certainly, especially as a big net importing country. Uh, you know, I think the great thing about industrials, it doesn't care if you're selling, you know, your stuffed animals online or in a, you know, in a Hallmark store somewhere, just as long as it needs to be stored somewhere temporarily. And I think the big development we've seen over the last, say, 12 to 18 months is that demand, which was once concentrated in very large centers, has now trickled down to smaller centers as a lot of um, tenants and potential tenants try to solve that last mile problem, right? If they're really trying to deliver goods and it's become almost like this nuclear arms race, oh, we have to get you your Furby in six hours or less or whatever it is. You can't just shoehorn a big building that close to an urban center. So uh, the way I've described it is almost like a constellation, right? You, you rent three or four smaller facilities that an aggregate total up to something larger, and then you just have good logistics software and systems that can kind of coordinate a little bit better. And all of those different centers are within a reasonable drive time to wherever you need to get the goods to go. And I think that's a good way to replicate a big center without having to pay for and, and develop a really big center. It's not a perfect solution to that problem, but it's certainly uh, a solution to that problem. Well, I want to get my teddy bear fast. You know? <laughs> so opportunities in industrial? I, I like that play. I like the smaller properties closer to urban centers. I think it's still, it's not early in this process, but it's far earlier in this process than people have jumped on the bigger centers. But that said, this is a widespread recovery. I think even in some of the smaller markets that are being overlooked, the Nashville's and Memphis's and Kansas City's of the world. Mm. We've seen a lot of strength in those markets and I don't think the cycle's fully played out for some of those secondary markets just yet. So I don't think it's just sort of the big six distribution markets and everybody else, the way it's more concentrated in office. I think this is a much more diffuse recovery and in, in industrial more akin to what we've seen in apartments up to this point. And a uh, quick word on office opportunities, where are they? Um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but I think if you're, if you're out the risk reward spectrum, the suburbs, the suburbs are being overlooked and I'm not saying the suburbs are a layup and there's a huge rift between winners and losers, but the suburbs are not dead contrary to popular opinion. You just have to be really careful about picking your deals because good deals can be home runs and bad deals you can go down swinging miserably, but I feel like the perception in the economy is that the suburbs are dead and the CBDs are ascendant, which I think is true, but it's not an absolute thing. There, there are still gradations within the suburbs. Ryan, great information. Thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. And thanks for joining us out there on one of the radio stations, iTunes or YouTube. Join us next week when we talk about adaptive reuse. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.